Hello. We're so glad that you've joined us. We hope that you're doing well. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. You know, people like having power and control. Maybe you don't think about that all the time. Maybe you'd say, wait a second, I don't really need power. I don't really like having power or powers for other people. But really, think about this for just a second. How would you feel if you had someone telling you everything you need to do? What if you have a boss that we call micromanages and, and tries to tell you every little thing to do and how to do it? Or a spouse? And especially how would you feel if the government told you how you were going to do every little thing? Freedom is such a powerful concept in America because the idea of freedom is really personal autonomy or personal power, the ability for us to do as we please, as we desire, which is personal power control over our existence. But we need to be honest about this desire for power, that it's one of the great desires and passions that have consumed human beings. The lust of the flesh, of which John would warn us in 1 John 2, 15-17, would include, among other things, greed, sex, and power. How many relish the thought of having control over other people? How many things have been done in history in the name of having control over other people or obtaining that control or maintaining that control over other people? And so we do well to consider what God has to say about power and how that power and control gets manifest in influence. They're very clear the Bible tells us the source of all power. We see this in 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 6, Psalm 62, 11, 68, 34, Jeremiah 32, 17, Revelation 4, 11, but it's said nowhere more clearly than Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. So no authority exists except from God. God has all authority and all power. And we see in Matthew 28:18 that God the Father has given this power and authority to Jesus his son. We see this also in Ephesians 1, 20-21, Colossians 2:10, Hebrews 1, 3, and Revelation 2, 26 and 27. And we can see here in Romans 13 that, okay, God has this power, he gives it to Jesus, and even then that power is also uh, given to others for various reasons. So, for instance, the whole idea of being subject to governing authorities in Romans 13 is because all authority comes from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. So government exists because God has empowered it to exist. John 19.11, Romans 13.1-5 through 5 here. Uh, in the Apostles, in Matthew 18.18, 18, uh, whatever has been bound or has been loosed in heaven, in the New King Covenant, is made known and bound and loosed on earth by the apostles. We see his authority also even in Luke 9, 1 and 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 10. Satan and darkness have power over that which who do their will. In Acts 26, 18, Ephesians 6 and verse 12. In Ephesians 5, 23-24, in chapter 6 and verse 1, we see that husbands and parents also uh, have authority bestowed upon them in their respective roles. And there are many other situations in which there are uh, legitimate authority roles given by God. 
Likewise, in the fact that we've been granted life and yet the opportunity to choose obedience or disobedience, we've been granted power and authority over our own lives. This is what we call the free moral agency. Um, where in Romans 6, for instance, we uh, can either be a slave of sin or a slave to righteousness, and we must choose which way we're going to go. And this idea of freedom that God has given us is emphasized in Scripture. Uh, there is some idea of power and control in the idea of freedom, at least in some area in which a person can rightly be said as being free, right? So in 1 Peter 2 and verse 16, Peter uh, begins that verse, and we'll look at more about that verse later, but he says, live as people who are free. So we're to live as free people. We're supposed to live as those who have been liberated, been freed from something. So, whoever we are, from the person who seems to be lowest on the totem pole, all the way to people in the highest part of the totem pole, so to speak, have power and control in life to some measure. Some have more than others. But how are we supposed to exercise that power and control? And there's really two kinds of ways of handling power. We could call them immature or mature, or we could also kind of look at it the way that Jesus does in Matthew chapter 20. The disciples argue about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And actually in this situation, James and John have tried to get the left and right hands uh, at his throne uh, for themselves. And so, in verse 25, Jesus calls the disciples and says to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. That's the way things are in the world. So there's a worldly way of handling power, lording authority over people, leveraging what you have to your advantage, especially the disadvantage of those over whom you're lording that power. The fact of the matter is that there's a lot of people who are power hungry and obsessed with power, and they're in that immature category. They're blinded by ambition for power, and that power, when viewed thus immaturely, is all about self-seeking. Uh, if, if they get that kind of power in their lives, such a person is going to uh, satisfy carnal worldly desires. They want the ego boost of having people in various ways bow down to them. They, ha they want the thrill of having control over uh, others and their fate. And there's different levels and different scales of that. Uh, but it's really the same challenge. I mean, we can think about... Uh, governmental authorities, presidents, tyrants, despots, uh, depending on your political opinions and persuasions in America, definitely we can see it overseas, uh, how there are people who will gain power over their countries and they'll use that power to oppress and enrich them, uh, oppress others and enrich themselves. So we can see uh, somebody who makes a lot of money and who makes sure his people get taken care of, uh, but other people are made worse off in the process. These people satisfy their desires and appetite. And in the end, their people are living in squalor and poverty, and they could care less because they've gotten what they've wanted out of the power structure. That same spirit, though, doesn't have to be just somebody in who has uh, great power like in political realms. That power is manifest a lot of times in managers at work uh, or a spouse or a parent, somebody who may be frustrated in other situations and have a lot of uh, overbearing authority figures in life or who just resent having authority figures over them, and yet, so they take all their frustrations out on those over whom they have rule, over whom they have authority. 
And a lot of times, even without that, they're just people who seek to gratify their desires. They seek after immature view of power to dominate, to control, to manipulate uh, to their advantage, even if it is to the disadvantage of the ones over whom they maintain that power. We can even see this when we teenagers or children are granted a measure of independence. They use that measure of independence or freedom as a vehicle, sometimes very literally vehicle, for arrogance, presumption, and especially disobedience. You give them a little bit of slack and all of a sudden they go out and do foolish things or dumb things. They're trying to exercise that power in very immature ways. Now all of these immature views of power from the smallest to the greatest are distortions of the proper and appropriate use of authority on a national and familiar individual level. That is why Jesus will say about how they know the Gentiles lord over them, the great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you, he says. Instead, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The appropriate, mature way of handling power is to recognize that that power and authority has been given by God. And if you understand who God is and why he's given that power, you're going to understand it and handle it very differently. Because power and control, when authority is given, it's really about responsibility and obligation. So yes, in Romans 13, 1-7, earthly rulers are given authority, but they're given that authority for a reason, to praise good conduct and punish evil conduct. And they're going to be held accountable by God for that. In the marriage relationship, in Ephesians 5, 22-33, excuse me, the spouse has the obligation to seek the best interest of the other spouse. The husband must love his wife as Christ loved the church, sacrificing himself for her. Yes, the wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ in all things. And so the husband will be called into account for how he managed his family and how well he uh, cared for those under whom uh, he, those who were given under him, the ones over whom he's been given this measure of authority. Same with parents, with children, that they have a responsibility for raising children in the right way in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, and will be called into account for how they uh, shepherded their children. And this is what is so well summed up by Peter in the rest of that verse in 1 Peter 2 and verse 16 when he says live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover up for evil but living as servants of God that's the idea a lot of times people think of freedom they think personal autonomy they start thinking ah I can go do whatever I want and maybe even if you do that for a season maybe you've had times you're like, I'm just going to do what I want and you realize very quickly that to do what you want, you need money. If you need money, you need a job or you need some source of income. And it's going to require you to do some things you don't really want to do, but it allows you to live and do the things you do want to do. Uh, if you make decisions in, you know, with this freedom that you have, these freedoms often bind you in responsibility to other people, uh, whether it's simply a financial situation where you owe somebody money, have to pay them back. Uh, but it could also be you have a kid with somebody, or you get married to somebody, uh, or any number of things that can be done in the name of freedom that now require responsibility and obligation. And so that's why even most of the time when we look at this idea of personal autonomy, at some point we come back to the fact that even if we want to exercise this power of control, there are still limits. And that in the end, the exercise of power of control is curbed by responsibility and the need to be responsible with that 
a particular concept of freedom. And that's what Peter's getting at. Yeah, we have a measure of freedom God has given us. We're not to use that to sin. We're not to use that to do what is wrong. We're to use that freedom, that power that we're given in whatever measure to serve God. We must channel it to the appropriate direction, not to be immature with the power, but to maturely handle it as what it is, a stewardship, a responsibility. Because in the end, we don't have any intrinsic power in and of ourselves. The power we have is given by God, and what God gives, God is going to request an accounting of, as we're going to continue to see. And that is why Jesus gives himself as the model. Jesus had great authority. And what is how has he used that authority? He has used that to seek to serve others and not to be served, to do God's will, and to be a blessing for others. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And so... Yes, God has given power and authority to certain figures for various reasons. It's also good to consider, functionally, how is power over others expressed? Well, for thousands of years, how have people tried to exercise power? They try to come in with swords or guns or some impressive display of, of force and to use coercion. When, you know, there are a lot of times where outward compliance was uh, compelled by the sword or threats of force. And maybe you get some success with some people to, to get them to submit even internally to the state. But the problem with this method has always been that you can get the outer man to comply, but the inner man, that a lot of times inside, uh, there's nothing but continued rebellion and hostility, and even more hostility when being forced to endure such conditions. This is not just true in terms of national governments with armies. This is also true in marriage relationships. It's true between parent and child, especially, and also within the church. And we need to come to the fact, we'll come to terms of the fact that we cannot force anyone to accept, believe, or change anything. We cannot force anyone to accept, believe, or change anything. In fact, this is evident from God's design for us. Because as God attempted to force, compel, or coerce us to accept him, believe on him, and change our lives. No. Love does not seek its own in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. And God is love in 1 John 4, 8. And this is why God doesn't do all those displays and signs that unbelievers would demand. Because God is not seeking to force us to believe. He's not going to overwhelm us. Uh, instead, he wants, he wants all to be saved, 1 Timothy 2, 4. And he uh, provides arguments, provides the basis for faith in the great saving acts he has done in the past. And he, he invites people to take on his burden. In Matthew 11, 28-30. Now you can try all you want, and a lot of people do try very hard, but you cannot coerce or compel anyone else to change or really to do anything. Uh, and so in the end, as it is with each one of us, so with everybody else, everybody will make a decision about what they're going to do. And if there's going to be change, that person must be persuaded or induced to make that change themselves. So we may not be able to force people, but we might be able to induce people to make changes through persuasion. Of course, that leads to the question, how can we persuade or induce others to change to be the kind of people God would have them to be? Is that even possible? Is it hopeless? Well, it's not hopeless because there's this great form of power and control that we do have uh, over others, and that is our ex influence through our example. 
And that's really the open secret about matters of power. And the Bible makes it clear that this is the power example that leads to persuasion. What do children do, after all, as their parents say or as their parents do? Children will follow the example of their parents, and that's their source of their parents' real influence. The child will follow after the way uh, in which the, the parent goes. Train a child the way he will go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, Solomon is able to say in Proverbs, uh, because of this tendency. How did Paul exercise leadership in congregations? He wrote, he charged, but he kept going back over and over again in Second Corinthians where there's a lot of hostility. In Second Thessalonians where there's not as much hostility, you saw the example of how we lived among you. And he keeps going back to that idea. You see how we lived. You see our example. Our example should show you. And so it was by example. He didn't just come and say the word. He also came to embody the word. In 1 Peter chapter 5, notice what Peter says to elders who are shepherding over a local congregation of the Lord's people. He says in verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. They're not to lord over, not to have that immature view of power where they, ah, control, and they're trying to, you know, extort, manipulate, or, or cajole even necessarily. They're supposed to lead by example. That's why the qualifications are there for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and other passages. That they've manifested their own conduct the way forward and have the moral authority, therefore, to encourage and influence people toward the same end. And really, in the end, how did Jesus exercise power over people? Because no man ever did as he did. He taught things and he did them. And that's, that's that compelling thing. He served... And therefore, people have been persuaded to serve in his name for millennia. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 12, uh, he encourages Christians to keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Uh, in verse 15, this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then verses 15 and 16 of chapter 3, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. So our example defines us even among those who are hostile toward us and who would persecute us. Now this influence that we have can be either good or bad. A lot of times when we talk about influence, we, rightly so, talk about the positive example. There were supposed to be lights of the world, cities set on a hill, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, that if we model the life of a disciple, others will be more likely to listen to what we have to say. And that is true. But so is the opposite. If we're not living the way we should, we give justification for people to reject God and or the church and to reinforce the belief that religious people are just hypocrites. That's why in Romans 2, 17-24, Paul indicts the Jewish person who would say uh, not to do something, but he does it himself, uh, that the Gentiles blaspheme because of them. And ex that's exactly what we see happen over and over again, that the, that the behavior of Christians, unfortunately, professed Christians, uh, gives Gentiles reason to blaspheme, and to revile, because it's not consistent with what God has established for us in Christ. So God can be praised or blasphemed because of the example that we embody. 
So how do we do this? How what what can be done? Well, there's all kinds of literature about this, about marriage relationships, work relationships, and things like that. A lot of different programs, different ways of doing things. But all of these things, you look at the whole self-help literature, it comes down to one essential truth. You cannot change others, but you can change yourself. Because in the end, we have power over ourselves, our decisions, our reactions to others, and our conduct. And this is something that's very important that we see in Romans 14.10 that Paul wants to emphasize as there's some issue about some matters of little consequence to God in, in that congregation. In Romans 14, beginning in verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So notice there what Paul's trying to say. Why is there a concern about how the Romans are judging each other? Well, because in the end, they're going to have to answer to God. We're being held accountable to God. We're not going to stand in, a, in judgment over each other. God's going to stand in judgment over each one of us. And so, we will give an account of, to God regarding what we have done. Very easy as humans to blame others for problems and difficulties when really the problem is for, with us. If you've been around small children, when you were a small child, you've heard this. They made me do it. She made me. He made me. But humans are not instinctual creatures. We make conscious decisions. People, circumstances, objects don't make us do or say anything, do they? Through our own power, we choose to do or say what we do or say. We choose to respond to people as they have acted toward us, or we choose to not react in kind to the way others have treated us. We're either living according to the works of the flesh or manifesting through the Spirit in Galatians 5, 17-24. There's really no other way of putting it. And so, when it comes down to getting busy, the work that we need to focus on is what we do control, which is our own lives. We need to make sure that we are living lives marked by the fruit of the Spirit, by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Showing that love and compassion and mercy and kindness and patience to all people, those in the world, yes, those with whom we work, those in the, among the Lord's people, those in our family, our fa parents, our children, our, our spouses, uh, all such people. Now, when we live lives that are devoted to the benefit of others, we're not seeking our own will, but the will of God and the betterment of our neighbors, uh, seeking his interests in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. If we're truly doing that, then yeah, people are going to take notice. If they're going to be persuaded, it'll be based upon uh, being receptive to the message of Christ they see revealed in the Word. Absolutely. Romans 1, 16, 17. Romans 10, 17. But that word has to be reflected in the life of believers. In Matthew 5, 13-16, Romans 8, 29, that we're conformed to the image of his Son. But if we're not reflecting Christ to the people, we're being dis sources of discouragement, and we're causing disincentives to exist to live according to the will of God. So, yeah, power and control is a thing. It's been a thing, it's going to continue to be a thing. Uh, and if we're honest with ourselves, we have a desire for power and control, at least over our own lives. 
We need to understand that all power comes from God. That it's all the stewardship. Everything from power over nations to power over the decisions you make in your own life. And it must all be used as he desires. We must use whatever authority we have to seek God's will and the betterment of other people. We need to handle that power we've been given with maturity to understand the responsibilities that God has given us. And to realize that what's our real source of power in life over other people, it's our example and the influence that we can provide. We can lead it, do it for ill. To be as the world is uh, means that people justify their lives in the world and see no reason to follow Jesus. But it can be used for good. To reflect Christ makes it either persuade others to recognize Christ as Lord and to seek his will. And so we all do well to use the power we've been given to the glory of God, to reflect good stewardship of the gift he's given us, to work on ourselves that we may better reflect Christ to all men, trusting in him. And we're so glad that you've joined us today. If you found this message beneficial, we please encourage you to share it with others, that it may be a benefit to them as well. If you'd like to discuss any of the things that we've mentioned here, you'd like to consider other discussions in the same theme, uh, maybe you'd like to have a Bible study or participate in a Bible correspondence course, maybe you'd like to find out more about the Venice Church of Christ or meet with us, please go ahead and find us online and contact us through VeniceChurchOfChrist.org or also on social media, Venice Church of Christ in Los Angeles, California. You can also contact me, Ethan Longhenry, personally. If you have any questions or comments or check out other things at DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.D-E-V-E-R-B-O-V-I-T-A-E.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.